Right, good morning, everybody, and uh, glad to see you. This, let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, it's on page 926 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. And if we've not met, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Foothills. Hey, we want to remind you, we, uh, we'll, we'll do this again, I think, at the end of the service as well, but we have an app now, a Foothills Baptist Church app, and you can get it. And on the app, there are all kinds of uh, good content uh, but you can find the sermon notes there. So if you want to take notes during the message, you can call up the app and fill it in. You can save them. You can send them to other people and other places, that kind of thing. So it might be a good use of your uh, just listening and being able to capture it with that. And so we'd encourage you to do that. Hey, we're in this study through Acts if you're new with us, and as we've gone through Acts, we have seen the Apostle Paul and his team doing the second missionary journey, and that's what the, that's what the map is about, and at the very northern part of that map, you don't really see the name of the city, it's, it's off the map. They went to Philippi when they moved into Greece or Macedonia in those days, and then they went south to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and then Timothy and Silas stayed behind in Berea, and Paul went on southward to Athens, and in Athens, we see Paul making known the unknown God, and that's the title of the message today, making known the unknown God. That's what he was doing there, and if you've ever been to Athens, then you have seen this building. Right? This is the Parthenon, right? And I think it's, uh, I think it might be, I've, I think I've heard that it's one of the most photographed buildings in the world. But it's neat to kind of understand that it was in the shadow of this building that Paul presented Christ to the people of Athens in the place called the Marketplace. And in verse 17, you'll see that. We don't really have anything in our culture, in our city, like the marketplace in Athens. It was a very unique kind of setting. Uh, when we think of something as a marketplace, we think that's a place where you go do business. You can buy and sell there. Maybe you want to go to the, the mall or the outlets or something like that. We think that's the marketplace. Or maybe you think of it as the financial center, perhaps of a, of a city where there are banks and lending institutions in one particular place. Well, that was true of the marketplace in Athens, but it was wider than that, deeper than that. It was a place where philosophy was discussed and debated. It was a place where education took place and where it was talked about. It was a place where politics happened. In fact, many people would say that the birth of Western democracy happened in the city of Athens. And so all of those things are happening. Art is happening in the marketplace. It's being made there. It's being displayed there. That's the marketplace. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a spiritual heartbeat to the marketplace. There's an ethos there, uh, we would call it religious plural plurality. Lots of different uh, religions being practiced in Athens. It was a very spiritually diverse place. In fact, they might have said something like this to you, practice whatever spirituality, whatever religion you want, just don't push yours on me. And that was kind of the ethos of the place. And it's been 2,000 years, but we're not very far removed from Athens in Paul's day. In fact, do you have a neighbor that has this bumper sticker on their car? Coexist, right? You're laughing because you already, you know who they are. You, you've seen it. Maybe you're laughing because you have it on your bumper. I don't know. But that's pretty popular. And that was Athens in Paul's day. And I think that it, that it really could summarize the, the ethos of Awatuki and certainly of Phoenix. And so as we see today in this text, Paul really presenting the gospel 
in Athens, bringing the gospel to the marketplace, it, it begs the question, how do we bring the gospel to the marketplace in our community and across our city? How do we do that? What do we learn from this passage that helps us to do that? So I want to do it under these four big headings. Why did Paul preach in Athens? How did he preach in Athens? Who did he preach in Athens and what were the results and then we'll talk about some implications at the end of it all right so we're going to begin in verse 17 uh, or verse 16 of the text all right so let me pray just before we before we do that father in heaven we thank you again this morning for the opportunity to gather together God I'm grateful for every element every part of our worship time this morning and father now we we come to you and we look into your word and we trust your word we believe it's true and we ask, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts, open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. We need to hear from you, God, more than anyone else, more than anything else. And so convict us by your word today, we pray, of our sins. Uh, challenge us, encourage us, move us forward uh, for the sake of the name of Jesus in our community and in our city. Father, teach us this morning what it would look like to make you known to so many who, people who do not know you in our community and across our city. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So why did Paul preach here in Athens? Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, to come from Berea, while he's waiting for them at Athens, his spirit is provoked within him. You could circle that little phrase, the spirit's provoked in him, because he saw that the city was full of idols. And so the idols of Athens have provoked Paul. They bother him. He cannot coexist with the idols in the city. And, and they bother him to such an extent that he, he, he's moved. He, he sees that the worship that rightfully belongs to the one and only God, the true and living God, is being given to all of these idols. And it's causing a conflict in him. Now that word provoked in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is usually applied to God whenever he sees people worshiping idols. When he sees them doing that, it talks about God being provoked. And he says often in those instances that he is a jealous God. Now, to be jealous, uh, that, that, that emotion is not always negative. Sometimes it's a very positive thing. If you love someone, a son or a daughter, a husband or wife, you love someone, it's good to be jealous of them, right? If you see two or three other people kind of taking them down the wrong path, there's, a, there's a, a jealous love that you can have for them that you're not going to let that be. You're going to get engaged. And, and if you see someone constantly making the wrong decision again and again and again to the ruin of their own life, you're not going to let it be. You're going to get engaged. You're going to dive in. You're going to try to have that, that conversation because you're provoked by this jealous love. It's a really complicated, complex set of emotions. There's compassion, I think, that Paul has for the people of Athens because he sees them involved in all of this worship of idols. And at the same time, he knows that they've erred. They're wrong. It's sinful to worship idols, and he knows they're doing it to their own hurt, to the harm and to the detriment of their own lives. And so you've got this complex mix going on in his life. And God is provoked by a jealous love when he sees people that he's made in his image worshiping idols, giving themselves to worthless idols. And that's why Paul preached in Athens. 
He is compelled to get the message out because he's motivated by a jealous love for the name of Jesus, that the name of Jesus would be known and worshiped and honored among the people of Athens. When you think about sharing the gospel with other people, how are you motivated to do that? What, what gets you off the couch and engaged in that game? What, what is it that moves you to open your mouth and talk about Christ? Uh, there are lots of different factors, perhaps, that move us. Some people, I think, are moved actually by pride, by pride, that they know the truth, they have the truth, they believe other people need to hear the truth, and uh, if you just hear the truth from me, then you're obviously going to agree with it because it is the truth. It's self-evident, and you need to hear it, and we're motivated kind of with a prideful attitude, but then there are a lot of people who are motivated out of duty. And since you're in a Baptist church this morning, I can say this, that Baptists really are motivated by duty many times when it comes to sharing the gospel. We carry around the duty to share the gospel kind of like so many bricks in our backpack. We feel compelled to do it. And there is something to say for the fact that there's obedience mixed into this. Jesus did tell us to go. He did say that we are his witnesses. He promised to be with us. And so there is a sense in which it is our duty to go and share Christ with people. But there's also a sense in which if we're only doing it out of a sense of duty, I think there's something essentially missing in the motivation to share the gospel. It's not really out of duty that we see Paul doing this or even out of pride why he's there. And the truth is the Christians who make the difference over time in the lives of other people are, are people who go like Paul and who share the gospel like Paul out of a jealous love for the name of Jesus among the people where you've been planted, where you live. Think about Athens. Athens is a city of people made in the very image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that God has given us the capacity to know him to be loved by him and to love him, to know his light and his life, his power, his glory, to worship him and to be fulfilled and to have our identity completed in him, in relationship to him. That's what it means to be made in God's image and to worship him. Here's Athens, a city full of people made just that way, and yet the city's full of idols. The city is full of a group of people who are constantly pursuing their satisfaction, their joy, their peace, their meaning in life in other things. And certainly that's true right here where we live in Awatuki. It's certainly true of Phoenix. And the question for you and me is this. Are we provoked at all in our spirits when we look into the lives of our coworkers and our friends, our family members, our neighbors? Are we provoked at all in our spirit that they're pursuing things that are empty and worthless, even to their own hurt? Are we provoked at all for a jealous love for the name of Jesus to be known and worshiped and honored by our neighbors and our friends? That was true for Paul in Athens. That's why he preached the gospel there. But how did he preach the gospel in this city? Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Keep reading. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers had conversed with him. You feel like you're back in philosophy 101 if you went to a liberal arts college. He's naming these people. And he says, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You understand they're struggling with all this. It's foreign to them completely. They don't have a frame of reference for a man born in Bethlehem, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of David, who ought to sit on the throne of David and rule forever. They, they, don't, have any, they don't have any categories to put this information into. And so it's a struggle for them, and they're 
They're wrestling with it. But they don't just leave it, right? It says they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's the ethos of the city, right? And so they're pressing in. And so here's Paul now, standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Have you noticed it'd be a neat thing for you to just kind of run back through Acts and notice how often the apostles find themselves standing in the midst of a group of people having to explain the gospel. And here's Paul standing in the Areopagus. And what does he do? I want you to notice how he presents the gospel, how he proclaims the gospel. Look, look at what he says. And look at what he doesn't say, actually. Well, you can't look at what he doesn't say. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't look at these people and say, men of Athens, I perceive that you are pagans of the first order and you are on your way to hell. He could have said that, right? I mean, that would have been true. It would have been true, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't start there, at least. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. How did Paul preach the gospel in Athens? Well, he didn't leave anyone out. He went into the synagogue and he preached to the Jews and to the God-fearers who were there. And we've seen that over and over again. And so Paul starts there, but then he goes out into the marketplace and he shares with all of the Greeks who were gathered there in the marketplace and doing that thing. It was a been, would have been a very active part of the city. Would have been a fun part of the city. We would have liked to have spent some time in that place. He talks to the Epicureans and the Stoics. He gets in conversations with them. Paul talked to everybody he could. It didn't matter where they were from, what they believed, what they were about. He engaged them in conversation. And did you see that little marker? He did it every day. Every day, he looked for opportunities to have conversations with all kinds of people. And what they thought of him didn't matter a bit. What is this babbler trying to say? It's a little ding on Paul. It's really kind of a funny word because it describes little birds and how they flit from one seed to the next. Sometimes they pick it up and they carry it off. Sometimes they eat it. Sometimes they just drop it and leave it for something else. And, and they're saying, this, this Paul is like a babbler. He's like a seed picker of ideas. He's just stringing all these loose ideas together. What does it all really mean? It's kind of an interesting little way to see Paul. But they take him to the Areopagus. And at the Areopagus, the leading men of the city have long discussions and conversations about philosophy and politics and religion. And in the midst of that place, Paul speaks to them. And it's interesting the way he starts with them. Now, since Paul uh, spoke to them in a kind way, when he said, I, I see that you're spiritual people, you're religious people, you have all these places of worship, and you have left some room, right? You've left some room, you've acknowledged the existence of a God, the possible existence of a God that you don't yet know, and you're making a place of worship for him. Let me tell you about him. There's a, a philosopher from Canada named Charles Taylor. He's written a lot of books, most of which I don't understand. And uh, he's, he's a thoughtful person in that way. And I have read a lot of cheat sheet material, if you will, about Charles Taylor and some of his philosophical things. And one of the things that he says that I can kind of explain to you this morning is how to share a point of view. He talks about the fact that there are two ways to get a point of view across to people. You can use a spin or a take. And I thought that might perk our ears up a little bit this morning since we're in the season that we're in. 
And this is what he says. A spin is smug and certain. A spin says, my view is obviously right. On the face of it, anyone would agree with this. And if you don't agree with what I have to say, well, then either you're just lazy or stupid. That's a spin. That's at least the disposition of a spin. It may not always be quite that pointed, but that's what a spin is. Paul didn't use spin in Athens. He uses what Taylor refers to as a take. A take. Have you tried seeing it this way? Have you ever considered thinking about this like this? Can I share my take with you on that? It's a different approach, isn't it? You can feel the difference. It's humble. It's open. It's not giving an inch on the truth. But it starts in a different place, dispositionally, and that's important. That's the way Paul starts here with the people in Athens. Paul is provoked in his spirit because he sees a city swimming in idols. It's offensive to him. There's compassion within him. He longs for these people to know the unknown God. But he doesn't start by banging them over the head. He begins at a point of community or a common place, a point of contact with them. And then he begins to work out. The, the idols that were in Athens were apparent. They were everywhere. And we look around our community and our city and idols may not be so apparent. But the truth of the matter is, as human beings, we're hardwired to worship. We've been made in the image of God to know God, to know transcendence, to know something greater and more glorious beyond ourselves. And we are constantly reaching for that, trying to own that, trying to bring it into our lives to find purpose and meaning, satisfaction, joy, anything that will root our identity into something bigger and greater. And that's what's going on in Athens, and Paul sees that. He's moved to speak about it. That's what's happening in Ahwatukee. It's what happens in Phoenix. It happens across the world. It doesn't matter your culture or your city. We make idols all the time. John Calvin said many, many years ago that the human heart is a little idol-making factory. And that's true. We make idols out of all kinds of things. Your car may be your idol. Some of you guys spend more time with your car than you do with your wife. Right? That might not be true, totally true. But uh, sometimes we make idols out of things like our cars or our trucks. We make idols out of our careers. We make idols out of our income and our wealth. We make idols out of our position and our status and our reputation. And we make idols out of what other people think about us. We make idols out of sex. We make idols out of all kinds of... We make idols out of our children. We make idols out of our families. We, we, all of these things are God substitutes to us. We invest our identity in these things. We invest our sense of joy and happiness and fulfillment and meaning in these things. They usurp God in our lives. And the point of the matter is this, that if there is someone or something in your life that ultimately gives you meaning and purpose and identity and all of that, then that is an idol and you've put it in God's place. And idols are very sorry substitutes for God because idols never deliver on what they promise. Idols always break the heart of the worshiper. Idols always disappoint. If you want to be a thoughtful witness in Ahwatukee and in the city of Phoenix, it would behoove us to pay attention to Paul's tact in this place called Athens. 
It might help us to think in terms of this, to think in, in terms of this question. How are the gods in the lives of my friends and family members, how are they failing them? How are the gods in the lives of my friends failing them? And as I thought about it even more this week, I thought, you know, we might need to back up even two more questions. Uh, question number one might be, what idols do I have in my own life? Can I even identify them for myself? Is there anything that I cling to that if I lost it, I wouldn't know how to live or go on? Because that's the thing, that's the person that, through whom I get my identity. That's the thing that gives me meaning in life. And if I were to lose, lose it, my world would be turned upside down. That's called an idol. Maybe we need to ask that question first. And maybe then we need to ask, well then, if that's what an idol is, and we can make an idol out of anything, what are the idols that I see? Because you may be thinking, well, I, I don't feel provoked the way you describe Paul feeling provoked. And it may be that we don't have the eyes to see just yet what the idols are in our community or in our city. And maybe we need to ask that question. So God, what are the idols? I see this in my own life. What are the idols in our community, in our city? Those things that people are putting ahead of you, that are usurping you, God. And then perhaps we can ask this question, well, then how are those gods in my friends' lives failing them? And when we begin to see that, we begin to see where we can find a point of contact, where we see brokenness and we can have a conversation about the gospel. Those things that are letting them down, leaving them empty. We've had a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor and they've said something like, you know, it just was never enough. Or I always thought once I got to this place that it would be great, it would be wonderful, but it's never enough. And, and I know that I want more. I feel like there must be more. And I'm wondering, is this really all there is? Those are all clues that someone's got an idol or two in their life and it's letting them down. It's a point of contact for the gospel. Paul shared the gospel in Athens because he was provoked by a jealous love for the name of Jesus to be known and honored among the people of Athens. And he shared the gospel by finding a point of contact with the people and by moving in there with a take. Have you considered this? This unknown God that you have made space for and that you seek to worship, can I explain him to you? And who then did Paul preach about? Of course, he told them about God. And I think that it's important. This message from Paul is different from the other sermons that you see in the book of Acts except for one other. Uh, and you go back to Acts chapter 14 and you find Paul there in those towns of Lystra and Derby. And in that one city in Derby, it was a very different kinds of situation and Paul started further back. It's very similar to what we find here in Acts chapter 17 because these people don't have the categories, they don't have a framework for understanding Jesus and salvation and judgment and sin and the need for grace they don't have those kinds of things. And so Paul has to go back further to the beginning. So who did Paul preach about? He preached about God, the one and only God, the one living and true God. He said, I want to tell you about him. And so let's look at it just as he breaks it down here. In verse 24, this is what he says. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, this unknown God, this God that is unknown to you, is the creator and the sustainer of everything around us that we see. He is the creator God, and he is the one who sustains life. Everyone who has life and breath within them, God is sustaining their lives every single day. The next breath that you take, the next beat of your heart, comes from this God. This God 
cannot be contained in a temple. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. How in the world do you think that you could contain him as an idol or in a temple? He sits outside of his creation. And he's not dependent on us for anything. You know, there's, a, there's kind of a, a very popular spin that you hear often in Christian music or you hear it from the pulpits and that kind of thing where people talk about, well, why did God create the world? Why did God make us? And, and the answer often is because God was lonely and he wanted to have a relationship with us. I'm not gonna dispute the idea that God created us and he wants to have a relationship with us, but that is not why God created you and me because he was lonely. God is self-sufficient. He is a being who creates everything and he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He wasn't lonely and therefore he created us. Our God is a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing eternally as one in perfect fellowship with one another. And so he didn't create us because he was lonely, but he did make us and he does long have a relationship with us. That's a good thing. God is the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of life. He is the sovereign ruler. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is like a father to all of us. We, we, we sang that this morning. You know, There is a unique way in which God becomes your heavenly father by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Christ alone for salvation, God adopts you into his family. You become a child of the living God. He becomes your heavenly father. But in the general sense, as Paul's presented it here, all of humanity comes from God. We're all made in the image of God. We all get our origin from God. There's no room for racism or prejudice, bigotry. Because as human beings, that's, that's the one. The one true God has made us. He's made every nation of mankind. I think it's so interesting that it says that he made from one man every nation on earth. So from one common ancestor, we have humanity. The Bible declares that over and over again. And he says that he's done this so that we might seek after him, so that we might push towards him and grope, as it were, longing to feel our way towards him and to know him and to actually be known by him. I think it's interesting. It means that people, that all of us have been created by God in certain times and seasons, and he's placed us in certain places in the world. He is the sovereign ruler. You don't live where you live by mistake. It's by the sovereign hand of God that he's put us where we're at. And any time that, you know, that HR or whoever it is comes to you and says, hey, we, we love you in this job, but now your job is moving to Chicago, or now your job is moving to San Jose, and you get kind of discouraged about that, and you wish it wasn't so, see the hand of God. See the sovereign ruler of the universe moving his people where he wants them to be. If you're a history buff and you look at maps and you see how maps have changed over generations, this, this did not happen simply as a result of politics or famine or plague or war. This happens because God is the sovereign ruler over all of humanity. He dictates all of these things. So God is a father to all of humanity. He is a sovereign ruler of all humanity. I want to say this as he, as he talks about the fact that God is our father. I, I, I love what he says here uh, in, in verses 28 and 29. Look at what it talks about. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
In him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting one of their, one of their poets, perhaps, one of their uh, songwriters, perhaps. We don't know, one of their philosophers. And some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we are not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul reasons from their philosophy. He goes backwards in his reasoning. He describes who God is by first getting a handle on who we are as human beings. He, he says that we have being. We're human persons. We relate to one another. And, and if we are beings, then the, the God that originated us is a being as well. He's not an idol of wood or stone or metal. He's not the product of the art and the imagination of humanity. And if you've ever had any kind of conversation with someone who's a bit agnostic and that kind of thing, they'll often push into that. Richard Dawkins wrote about it. Hitchens wrote about it. All of the new atheist thinkers write about this. Uh, there's a man, I think his name is Charles Pullman, who wrote a series of kind of fantasy novels. He talks about the fact that it's, it's, it's this, well, it's this, it's this effort to fool humanity that God is the creator because if we make God the creator, then we're somehow accountable to him that we're somehow accountable to him for our lives. It's the imagination of humanity that creates the God of Christianity, but that's not true. Because as human beings, we would never create a God like this. We would never imagine a God that Paul describes here because we're far too independent and we want our autonomy way too much. We would never construct a God who is the creator of everything, who is totally self-sufficient, who sustains all of our lives. We would somehow take the credit and find a way to take the credit for all of those things. We would never believe that there is a God who is the sovereign ruler over all things. We would believe and continue to believe that history is somehow of our making, that we determine the ends. We would never come up or imagine a God who is the father of all humanity. There's too much racism and prejudice and bigotry in the world still now for us to believe those kinds of things. But that's the way that we see this. And God does want a relationship with us. This picture is intense, that we should seek God in the hope that we might feel our way toward him and find him, that he's actually not far from us because in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of his poses said, we, we are his offspring. God wants us to know him. He is like a father to humanity. He is a personal being. He is near to us. He is knowable. But he is also the judge. Look at verses 30 and 31. Paul wrote this, he said this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. And so there's this frame of reference, there's this time that has been going on since the beginning of the world, the times of ignorance. It says God has overlooked that. He's shown a lot of patience and a lot of grace through history. That's what Paul is saying. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And why does God come to all people everywhere? Without exception, none of us can, can opt out. We are commanded by God to repent. And why is that? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's a completely new idea for these people in Athens. That there is a God who is going to judge everyone in the world and that we are all accountable to him. And then he says this, and he has fixed this day, right? That he will judge the world in righteousness. That's how he's going to judge. And I'm sure that the people in Athens like we today can come up with all kinds of instances of injustice being done through the court systems. And we look at that and we say, that's true. And we see it. But this God is going to come and he's going to judge righteously. 
And he's going to do it by a man he has appointed, and he has, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By raising him from the dead. God is commanding all people everywhere to repent. When Jesus came onto the scene and he began to preach the gospel, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and believe the gospel. Paul is saying repent. God is commanding us to repent, to turn around, to change our minds about who God is and how we relate to him. Because he is going to judge the world. And it's certain. The date is set. He's shown patience and grace for generations, but God will not continue to allow a rebellious humanity to continue to pick up one idol after another and worship all of these other things rather than him. He's the one who's created us and knows us. And it makes sense. We're accountable to him for our lives. And even though there's injustice in the world, he's going to judge righteously. He's going to do it through this man he's appointed. And he's talking about Jesus. I think it's important for us to understand. You say, well, he doesn't mention Jesus in that section. You're right about that. If you back up, you'll see he mentions Jesus. He even talks about the resurrection in the marketplace. What we have here in Acts 17 is not Paul's full message in the Areopagus. What happens at the Areopagus are long, extended conversations and discussions. This is the framework for what Paul did in that place. He talked about Jesus. He's naming this man that's been raised from the dead. And he's saying God has appointed this day, and this is going to be the judge, Jesus. And the judgment is coming just as certainly as Jesus has been raised from the dead. And, and I think it's important for us to notice as well that it's not just that the resurrection of Christ is evidence that judgment is coming. There's more to the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just that it's evidence that judgment is coming. It is evidence that a new order is coming. It's evidence that a new creation is on its way. This world that we live in is not going to always be this way. It's going to change. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that causes that change. And so the moment that Jesus came alive out of the grave, God was saying something to all of the world. The curse that we have lived under because of sin, the death that we have all experienced and fear or dread, it's coming to an end one day. When judgment comes, a new order will come in and all things will be made new because Jesus is alive from the dead. Paul is driving that stake into the ground and he wants them to know it. All of time has been winding down, waiting for this day of judgment. When judgment will come and God will deal with those who have cast him aside, ignored him, and would not worship him. And when he begins and ushers in a new creation order. So what are the results? The end of what Paul has to say here. You see it there in 32 through 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Not surprising, we've seen this response time and again, and we've probably experienced it ourselves, where we've shared the gospel and people are very antagonistic about it. All right, a guy came out of the grave alive, not buying it. And so some people mocked, but then look at that. It says, others said, we will hear you again about this. And so some people wanted to hear more. And some people, as you talk to them, they're not ready to make a decision right then, but they're willing to read the Bible with you. You say, hey, well, let's, let's read the Bible together or let's read this book together. And they're willing to engage. They have, still have questions and they want to talk about it. I'm curious, just by a show of hands, if you're willing to do this, how many of you, the first time you heard the gospel, came to faith in Jesus? The very first time. Put your hand up and hold it up for a second. How many of you? First time you heard the gospel. I see one, two, three. I don't know how many people are in the room. Four, four people out of all these folks. And how many people I had in the first service? 
which there's probably another 50 or so people in that service, one person. I think this is in here, and it shows us this for a reason. Uh, it says, let me, let's continue with the text here for a second, and then we'll explain it a bit more. It says, so Paul went out from their midst, in verse 33, right? But some men joined him and believed. So some people came to faith, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I think this is in here for one reason, to encourage us. Because when you're proclaiming the gospel, you're presenting the gospel to people, particularly people who've never heard it before, don't be surprised when you get mocked and when people push back antagonistically. It's going to happen. It's been happening for a long time. It's going to continue to happen. We're going to experience that some more. But there will be some people who want to know more, who will have questions, and they're willing to have that conversation. Are we willing to have the conversation? Are we willing to open the Bible and read it with them? Maybe a good Christian book and read it together with them and answer their questions because that's where most people find themselves. That's where we find most people who turn to come to faith in Jesus. It takes some time. It's not usually the first time someone hears the gospel. But I'm going to take it on the face to say that this Dionysius and this Damaris and these others with them, it was the first time they'd heard the gospel perhaps. Maybe they'd heard it earlier in the week and they'd been in part of those conversations but it was very early on, and they came to faith. And I think the lesson for us is this, that when you find yourself presenting the gospel with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, don't get so worked up about whether or not they trusted Christ right then on the spot. Because the truth of the matter is it may take some time, and trust that God will use you and be willing to invest the time and effort with them, just the way Paul did. Those were the results. And I love the fact that there might always be a Damaris or a Dionysius standing around listening to you. You just don't know who's there. They might believe right on the money, right, right in the moment. How do we take the gospel to the marketplace? The implications, I think, three of them quickly, that we ought to be provoked by a genuine desire for Jesus to be known and worshiped and honored as he rightfully deserves. That we ought to have that kind of desire, that kind of provocation in our hearts as we look into the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and family members. That ought to be stirring in us. John Stott wrote this. He said, we don't speak as Paul spoke because we don't feel as Paul felt. And, you know, preaching uh, is a wonderful task. And I'm grateful to God for it. But one of the most difficult things a preacher ever has to say is, feel this. <laughs> feel this. I'm asking you to feel what Paul felt when he looked around and saw these Athenians in this city full of idols. There was something that stirred in his heart. He was provoked in his spirit. Am I provoked in my spirit? When I look around my community, when I look into the lives of the people around, is there something that provokes me to say, the name of Jesus is not being honored here. Jesus is not king here. He's not recognized and worshiped here among these people as he should be. Is that what motivates me to move out with the gospel? Listen and look for points of contact and brokenness among your friends, among your neighbors. Start close at home, I would say. Start with the people that you see in your daily coming and going. And ask yourself, how are the idols in the lives of those people failing them? You have to have your eyes open. You have to be willing to listen. You know, we've got that big map out here on the wall. And we've been asking you to let us know that you've had a gospel conversation with someone by writing a name on a ping pong ball and dropping it in there because we we're convinced that this church was put here 30 years ago, three decades plus, 
Why? So that the gospel would be unleashed into this community. And we believe that's why we're here. And so we've been asking you to do that. Today we're asking you to do something different. We're asking everybody to interact with that map this way. It's a very simple thing. There are little blue stickers out there. And we want you to mark where you live on the map. Because we believe that God has put us here for a reason. And he's placed us here for his purposes. So that people can come to know Christ. We're the light in this area. Now, we're not the only Christians in this area as a church. I understand that. But where do we live as a church, right? Where are all of our homes? Where are our families located? That's what we're asking you to do. Just kind of plot your home on the map out there with that little blue sticker. A lot of our leaders have done that. At first service, people have done it. We're asking you to do that. And I want to say this as a caveat, right? Because uh, we love our folks that drive up from Maricopa. Uh, but Maricopa isn't on the map, right? So you're going to do your best. Go down to the bottom of the map, put it there. We'll have a cluster of blue stickers there for all you Maricopaites or Maricopians. All right, and if you live east of the 10, again, we don't have that on the map, but just you'll see that, and we're asking you to kind of plot about where you would be there. And then as you do that, to think about how you can have a take. When, when you have those opportunities, there's that point of contact, and you see those opportunities that you can have a take you can say to someone, hey, you know, I, I'm sorry to hear that. Have you considered this? Can I share with you what I've learned about this in my life? And you have a take and you share that with a person. That's how Paul shared the gospel in Athens. That's how he took the gospel into the marketplace there. I think there's something for us to learn here about how we take the gospel into the lives of the people all around us every day. This morning we take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, we come to the table, the bread and the cup, symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus.